0: Now, lies don't just appear out of nowhere. Lies show up, and they're told by dishonest people. Or people who are just plain wrong and mistaken. Some people have evil motives. Some people are well-intentioned. But a lie is always what? A lie is always a lie. Error is always error. And lies and errors must be dealt with. And that usually means that we have to go to people who are telling lies... And we have to tell them the truth. And we have to confront them with what is right and what is true. And Paul says to Titus, Appoint these men in every city and give them this task. So if you came to me and you said, Chad, here's your job. Tell the truth, teach sound doctrine, and look out for errors and, and confront it with the truth. Rebuke people. And if, if they won't be quiet, silence them. Now how do you silence people? It's not the mafia. You just They can't come to church anymore and tell their lies, right? You, you don't let them teach. All right, now, so if I'm looking for that in the church, and, and just if I was one of these men on Crete that were told to, to look for the error, uh, who would I be looking for? Well, let's kind of go through our passage. And the first thing we see, the first thing that these men would want to be on the lookout for would be those who are rebellious. Look at verse 10. It says there are many. So on this island, there weren't just a few. There were many. This was a big problem. Who are insubordinate. That means rebellious. When someone's insubordinate, it means they're not taking instruction from their superior. They're rebelling against their superior. So there are many that are insubordinate, rebellious. They are empty talkers. Okay, they talk nonsense. And you know, a lot of teaching in Christendom or what, and especially in what is very popular, which when I say popular, you know, it's funny we were just talking about us being on the radio, but you know, most of the preachers that are on television and on the radio, they have a very popular message. Now, why is their message so popular? Because they can kind of peddle it. If I said to you, hey, come and follow Jesus Christ, and Jesus said people will hate you. Is that a real popular message? Did Jesus actually say that? Yes, he did. Okay, so because of me, because of my name, all people will hate you. You're not going to be popular in this world if you're following Jesus Christ. But if I got up and said, hey, come follow Jesus and you'll get rich. Is that a popular message? If I said, yeah, if you want to get rich, give me some of your money, which is really, that's not thinking very smart, is it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the best way to get rich is not to give a guy on TV your money. Uh, but that's the, pe- that's the message that's often peddled okay, uh, it's empty talking, because all you have to do is, is take a few Bible verses and apply them to the teaching of those prosperity teachers on television, and you can knock down everything they say with just a few verses. They're empty talkers. They're making big promises, but they're not biblical promises. They are deceivers. you so are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, which that word in the Greek really means exploiters. They're taking advantage of people who are weak-minded, He says these people are especially, now remember we're talking about what's going on here in the first century, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, the circumcision party, that sounds like a party you don't want to go to, but the circumcision party, what he's talking about there are Judaizers who insisted that people follow certain Jewish customs, that they submit to certain Jewish traditions and rules and regulations so that they can be saved. So what the Judaizers were saying is, yes, you need to trust Jesus. But you can't trust Jesus until you're a Jew first. So you need to be circumcised. You need to wash this way. You need to observe this festival. You need to believe in this tradition. And so they were taking all of these rules that the Jews have been trying to follow since they were brought out of Egypt. Were the Jews ever able to follow those rules? No. But they were putting those rules on the people saying, you got to do this and believe in Jesus to be saved. Is that the gospel? No. The gospel's never Jesus plus something else. The gospel's always just faith in Christ alone. And if anybody's trying to add something to it, they're deceiving you. They're lying to you. They're not telling you the true gospel. And So that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were adding things to the gospel, and they were deceiving people, and they were upsetting people when they were doing this. Especially, he says, those of the circumcision party. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Paul's saying this to the Romans, but this could equally apply to to the people that were there on Crete. We're no longer bound by those old rules. We've been released from what once bound us, and we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way. And what the Judaizers were trying to do was say, you got to do the new way and the old way at the same time. And Paul says in verse 11, the people teaching that must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul's cure for the false teachers was simple. Stop their mouths. The word literally is they must be muzzled and there's two ways to do that. When someone thinks something that's wrong, remember Apollos had some things that were a little bit out of order, uh, and what, what happened? Pr- Priscilla and Aquila came, and they taught him the truth. So one way to deal with someone that's in error is to teach them the truth and tell them, don't teach this wrong stuff anymore. Teach this right stuff. Don't be deceiving people. You're, 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 you're meaning well, but here's the, the whole truth. And if they won't listen, if they won't repent, then you excommunicate them. You don't eat with them. You don't have anything to do with them because they're hurting your church. Now, the problem apparently in Crete was that the island was known all over the world for how awful its people were. If you called someone a Cretan, that means you were accusing them of being a liar. And I've still heard people in my life using that term. To call someone a Cretan means that you're you're saying something negative about something. That's how bad the reputation of the Cretans were. So the weeds of lies and false teaching, they had a great spot to grow in Crete because the Cretans, as Paul says, were already a bunch of liars. And they had little regard for what was true to begin with. They had a terrible reputation. Paul was not impressed after his visit. He says that they're all devoted to lies and evil and gluttony which brings us to the second kind of person to be dealt with. So Paul says, look for the rebellious people. Look for the empty talkers. Look for the exploiters. Look for the people that are adding things to the gospel. And then he says, look for those that love lies. Look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, one of their own philosophers, a prophet of their own, and he quotes this prophet, a poet. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's what Paul thought after his visit. (laughs) I've heard this about the Cretans. Now I've seen it with my own eyes. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So here's where we get the idea of what's going on. Paul would come in. Paul would teach, then people would come behind Paul and preach something other than Christ. The Judaizers would come in and teach Jewish myths, teach Jewish commands, teach Jewish laws, and they were perverting the truth of the gospel that Paul had given them. And the church is being perverted by lies about the most crucial thing. How is a person made right with God? If you get that wrong, if you get the go- can anyone be saved by a false gospel? No. So if you get the, the basic fundamental thing wrong, which is what was happening in Crete, they weren't arguing about, you know, secondary and tertiary doctrines. They were, there, there was a situation where people were deceiving other people about the actual content of the gospel. They were not sound in the faith. They did not understand the one true gospel because people were lying to them. And the Judaizers come in and say, oh yeah, Paul told you this, but he didn't tell you everything. If you really want to be made clean, if you really want to have your sins forgiven, do this, do this, eat this, don't do this, wash this way. Putting traditions on them that the law that had, uh, of the law that had been abolished. Now those who claim that they were clean, Paul says, they're not really clean themselves. They are insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers, they're adding things to the gospel. They love lies. And because they're liars and they're coming to Crete, where everybody in Crete apparently had pretty low character to begin with, it was a fertile breeding ground for people that were believing lies. And so Paul says these people are coming in and they're trying to tell these Cretans how to be clean, but these people are dirty themselves because they don't have the right gospel. And they're lying and they're doing this for shameful gain. And so he tells Titus, you should be on the lookout for all that. But also be on the lookout for those with defiled consciences. Look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. And I, I, I put that, when I, when I was writing the sermon, I put that in bold, that part of the verse. That's like the only positive thing in this whole passage. And I, kept, I told Melissa, we're driving, I said, well, this passage is really wearing me out because it's so negative. Like it's 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 just all it always seems like all bad news from verses ten to sixteen. But then there's that one little that one little spot there. To the pure, all things are pure. Isn't that a beautiful idea? A beautiful thought. And then we go back to the negative. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're dirty. They're not pure. They're impure. To the pure, all things are pure. Let's think about this as believers. Our purity does not come from the things we avoid. Our purity does not come from how we wash our dishes or wash our hands or whether we keep certain festivals on a calendar. There's a perception that our holiness and our good behavior make us holy. Don't you think that's what most people believe? If you want to be clean, you've got to do clean things. So you clean yourself up, and then you'll be holy. That's how everyone thinks. That's how all the religions work. You work really hard to be holy, and then you'll be holy. Is that how Christianity works? The truth of Christianity is this. Only the holiness and the cleansing work of Jesus and the conviction of the Holy Spirit can change your mind and your conscience. You can't get holy by trying to be holy. You can't get holiness by trying to be holy. When you try to be holy, you know what you find out? That you're not holy. The harder you try to be sinless, the more you're going to be aware of your sins. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't strive for holiness? Of course not. We want to be obedient. We want to do what is right because that's the best way to live. That's how God's told us to live. A God who loves us has said live this way. But the more in tune you are with what God is, which is holy, the more you will understand that you are not holy. And that if you are going to be made holy, that holiness must come from somewhere else. It has to come from Jesus Christ. I was listening to a preacher who was talking about this passage as I was preparing for this sermon. And he said he was dealing with a young man who had recently given his life to Christ. And I'm not going to give you all the details of this illustration because I think they're distracting. But basically, this young man had participated in sinful behavior before he'd gotten saved. It was kind of his, it was kind of his life, okay? And he had, he had abstained from this certain behavior for a while as a Christian but he was considering going out and engaging in this harmful and sinful behavior. And he, he, didn't, he wanted to on one hand, but he didn't want to on another hand. And so he said, I'm going to call my pastor and tell him what I'm about to do. So he calls up the pastor and he says, I'm going out to go do this. I'm getting ready to go do this. And he said, what do you think? And the pastor said, well, I'm not happy about it. He said, do you think I'm about to go sin?" the pastor said, yes, you're definitely about to go out and, and engage in sin. And he said, well, what should I do? And the pastor said, what would you do if you were as righteous and holy as Jesus? What would you do if you were as righteous and holy as Jesus? So the young man hangs up the phone, and he sat there and thought about it. He said, what if I was righteous and holy as Jesus. And he thought about what he knew about the gospel. What does the gospel say happens whenever we believe in Jesus? It says that we're justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means that in God's eyes, you are as righteous and as holy as Jesus. Is that your righteousness and holiness? No, it's alien. It came from somewhere else. The righteousness and holiness of Jesus is put into your account. By faith, Abraham was credited to him as as, credited as righteous. So whenever you get saved, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus is put onto you. It's imputed, that's the word. And your sins, and all the sins you've committed and ever will commit, those are put on, imputed, and charged to the account of Jesus. So that when Jesus is on the cross... He's taking God's wrath for your sins. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his holiness and righteousness are put on you. And some of y'all are looking at me like, what are you talking about? You are. There's strange looks on your faces. I'm telling you the good news. (laughs) So think about what you're like, what do you mean I'm as righteous and holy as Jesus? That's how you're looking at me. Is this real? Could this possibly be true? Could I be as righteous and holy as Jesus? In God's eyes. That's what Jesus was working for. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross. That's why God rose him from the dead. That's why he lived a perfect life when he, and never disobeyed one of the Ten Commandments. He, was, he came to earth. This was his mission. was So that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, when you stand before God, because it's appointed how many times for a person to die? One time, and then what happens? What's it say in the Bible? It's appointed once for a man to die, and then what? Then there's a judgment. Now you live in a culture where that's a bad word. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. That's what everybody says. You would much rather have me judge you than God. Because I'm like you. But one day you're going to die and you're going to stand before a holy God. And if you've sinned one time and you stand in front of a holy God as impure and defiled, you are destroyed. You're dead. you go to hell forever. You will suffer God's wrath for all of eternity. But if you stand before God, and you're as righteous and holy as Jesus, you're acceptable. That's the only way. So it's like every year, fifth and sixth grade Bible school, I say, all right, how many have ever broken a Ten Commandment? Now I'll raise their hand. What happens if you break the Ten Commandments? You go to hell, and they just think, oh my gosh. <laughs> what am I going to do? I said, that's the bad news. Y'all want to hear the good news? Say, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're justified. I've heard someone say before, you stand before God, and it's justified, never sinned. You're justified. You stand before God, and the holiness And the righteousness of Jesus is put onto you so that God doesn't see your sin. You're covered by the blood of Jesus and you're white as snow. That's the gospel. I'm trying to get this in my mind. And isn't it it, it hard that you can be a Christian for a long time? I mean, I've been a Christian for something like four decades. And I'm still wondering, when am I going to get this? Why do I need to come to church every week? Because I don't got it. Why did God make me a preacher? Because he knew it was the only way that I would ever get it. (laughs) I think preachers, we need the sanctification probably worse than anybody because we're hard-headed and stubborn and we don't want our minds to change. But just like this young man, he was hung up the phone with his pastor and he starts thinking about it. I am as righteous and holy as Jesus. Jesus. I'm as righteous and holy as Jesus in God's eyes. Now I'm still having all these desires because I've got my sin nature and I've got this new nature and there's a battle there. And I can either choose to walk in the Spirit or I can walk in the flesh. But he started thinking about this. I'm as holy and as righteous as Jesus. And just that thought, as he began to think about that, He decided, I'm not going out. Now, his own righteousness didn't make him righteous. His own righteousness. He was a sinner. And you know what? Even if he'd have gone out and sinned, in God's eyes, he'd still been justified if he truly believed. He would have still been as righteous and holy as Jesus. That's how the gospel works. Whenever you get saved, you're still going to sin afterward. But we've got this Holy Spirit that's living inside of us. That convicts us of our sin and causes us to repent of it. Now, if if you think you're a Christian and you're able just to go out and sin and you don't feel convicted about it, I would caution you to really think about whether or not you're saved. Because that's not the way the gospel works either. The gospel changes everything. When we have this understanding that we are as holy and righteous as Jesus, that That we weren't holy because we worked ourselves up into holiness, but it's because Jesus has given us the gift of His holiness and righteousness, we begin to view ourselves in a different way. And it changes something in us. It changes our mind. It renews our minds. So that when we're faced with temptation, maybe here's what we need to do. Stop and think, I'm pure. I'm whole. I'm redeemed. I'm looking at this world differently. And that is how our minds change. From thinking like defiled people, that we were, to thinking purely, which is what we are. So before my behavior will change, I have to know what I am. I have to know the truth, that I am as holy and righteous as Jesus because of the work that Jesus has done. That's the greatest news of all, isn't it? And then, once that's happened, our Our works begin to change. We don't do holy works so we can be holy. We're made holy, and then we do what holy people do. We're transformed. And we're transformed by that very truth of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to shape us and form us and renew our minds and make us think differently. And then we start to do and think what is true. And so Paul's saying, look out for these people. Look out for these people. Truly holy people will live in a consistent way with what they proclaim. But there's one more kind of person he said to look out for. He said, look out for those who reveal their works, uh, who reveal by their works, excuse me, that they are really denying God. They say that they're proclaiming God. They say they're proclaiming the gospel. They say they're teaching you what it means to be a Christian. But really, really, if you look at their works they're denying God. They profess to know God but they deny him by their works verse 16 they are detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work. I had a friend who was a youth minister and he said that was that was the verse his life verse for his youth group. He said they were detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work and I said well I'll pray for you. <laughs> but you know what the proof is always in the pudding. And it's funny to think uh, that when you're a preacher, your trade is words, isn't it? But you talk, you talk, you talk, you talk, you talk. And you you sing the words, and then you preach the words, and you go to the nursing home and sing some more words and preach some more words. You go to a Bible study, and at the end of the day, you think, I said a lot of words. But you know what? Talk is cheap. The more you talk, the more you realize that talk is cheap. Lots of people say they follow Jesus. But Jesus didn't tell us just to say that we follow him. A lot of people say, I follow Jesus, I follow Jesus, I follow Jesus. Saying that is not following him. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is actually following him with our whole lives. Don't live the kind of life where you profess to know God, verse 16, but deny him by your works. That is detestable, that's disobedience. And that makes you to where you are unusable by God. Discipleship, what is it? It's actually following Christ with our whole lives. And the lie that I would say, if there's one big sickness and one big error in the church in 2023, is this that you can really be a Christian without following Christ. Christians can be some of the nastiest people around because they know how to hide and lie and make it seem like they're good and virtuous when the truth is they're really snakes. People have convinced, they're such good liars that they've convinced themselves that they're believers when in fact they're rebellious and they're devoted to lies. They don't really understand the gospel, they have defiled consciences, and they reveal by their works that they deny God. They, could, they have convinced themselves, even though they could read verses 10 through 16, and it describes them, they are convinced that they're okay with God. Paul is right. That's detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So who needs to be dealt with in the church? Well, this is the guide. So if we're ever encountered with someone that's teaching error and who comes in here and begins to spread lies, and it happens in some churches, this is the guide. This is what we're looking for. These are the principles. This is how we identify the sickness in the church. And we combat it with the truth, and we have to have the guts to silence people that would destroy the church. But what about a personal application for us? Okay, as a church, yeah, we'll grab this, and we can grab a hold of it, understand this is a letter written to the pastors, but it's also to be read by the churches. This is kind of telling us how to conduct church. But what about for us? How can this scripture shape and form and fashion me into a person more like Jesus Christ? Well, there's an apocryphal tale about G.K. Chesterton, and uh, I had heard this all the time. I didn't realize it probably didn't happen. But uh, he was a famous uh, journalist and writer uh, at the turn of the last century. And so uh, in the newspaper one day, one of the edit- editors of this newspaper uh, was asking the question, what is wrong with the world? And, and it's, the story goes, I guess it's not really true, but it's a great story. They say that Chesterton wrote in and he said, dear sirs, answering the question, what is wrong with the world? He said, dear sirs, I am. I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. The first step in following Jesus is to get it. Okay? To understand that the reason I need Christ is because I tend towards rebelliousness, I believe lies. My conscience all often runs towards the impure thought. And when I choose to sin rather than to be obedient, I'm denying what I believe by my actions. That's why we need Jesus. And when we're broken before Jesus, when that's the way that we're living, just living in a constant state of knowing, this, this really describes who I, who I was. And who I sometimes revert back into being. When I realize that, I don't ever think I'm better than anybody else. When I think I'm just as susceptible to lies. If I I take my mind off the truth, I'm susceptible to believing lies. I will follow my feelings and trust my heart instead of trusting God's word. This is who I am. I am one who gets up here and talks a big game on Sunday morning. But do I live it out Monday through Saturday? And the answer to that is, no, I don't. And as, as much as, and, and, and really, I would say, as much as I would love to just be perfect, and I have a desire, I know that I'm not. And so I am always before God as a broken person. I always get it, you know, wake up every morning, you know, you get in the shower and think, oh, man. And I, and I, and I just feel that, that brokenness in my spirit of, of, of wishing I was different. Wishing that I didn't struggle with sins. Wishing that I didn't struggle being angry or with all the selfish and all the things that I am. Wish I was a better dad. Wish I was a better husband. All those things. We just got to be broken. That brave, I'm broken before God. And what does the Lord do then? To the one who's, the one who's broken. Well, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't destroy the bruised reed, He lifts up our head and He says, Remember who you are in Christ. When I see you, I see the perfection of Jesus Christ. So, child, don't be discouraged. Yes, you tend to be one who's rebellious, Chad. You tend to believe lies. You tend to have impure thoughts. And your your behavior is not always consistent with your confession. And that's why I sent Jesus, my son, to die for you. So that your identity could be in Jesus And you remain broken before me and you remain trusting in Jesus Christ and you remain devoted to that truth and you will not be the person that threatens the church. But you'll be one who I can use.